Let's pray together once again. Father, as we come to this point in our service of worship, where we seek to honor you and hear from you by the reading, by the teaching, by the preaching and proclamation of your holy and perfect word. Father, I I know that I am fully and completely incapable and unworthy. But praise be to you, Father in heaven, that you are fully worthy and more than capable. Lord, I, I pray, just as John the Baptist said, that you might increase as I decrease. That you, Spirit, might speak to us through the power of this precious word that you have breathed out and preserved for thousands of years. God, that you would give us strength to face a new week. Lord, that you would watch over us and give us encouragement, Lord, in the face of tragedies that have happened in our community, in the face of sickness that is going around. Lord, we need healing. We need comfort. We need strength. We need encouragement. And you are able to provide all of that from your word. Nonetheless, Lord, we also need correction. Father, I need correction. So I I ask and I pray that you would convict us and challenge us and correct us as as you see fit. That you would take this time and, and have your way among us. We ask all these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I encourage you to take them and turn with me once again to Galatians. And we will be in Galatians chapter 3. And I have gone through the last several weeks my way of finding my way through some of the New Testament. You get to the New Testament there. You have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You have Acts and Romans, First and Second Corinthians. And then you reach what I have always called in my whole life the General Electric Power Company. But I had some loving brothers in Christ approach me after uh, last week's service and tell me that I no longer live in Birmingham. And it is no longer politically correct to say the General Electric Power Company. We live in Covington County and we have a power cooperative. So if you want to find those books, it's the General Electric Power Cooperative for us in Andalusia. All right. So that's that's the correct terminology. But that's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians and Colossians, the General Electric Power Cooperative. Now we're using the correct terminology. We're going to be in chapter three again. And if you'll remember with me that we spoke about a couple weeks ago, this verse in second Peter, second Peter, chapter three, verses 15 and 16, where Peter talks about how the letters that Paul writes are on the same authority and level as all other scripture. But he also gives this admittance, this disclaimer that they are sometimes very hard to understand. We are slowing down just a little bit in Galatians chapter 3 because we're starting to get into the thick of it. Because we're reaching one of those points that Peter was talking about where some of Paul's letters can be difficult. Paul has made incredibly accurate arguments, sometimes subliminally, sometimes very subtly. He's woven those arguments in and out, defending the gospel. Now he is about to make some straightforward airtight arguments about the efficacy of faith and grace, about how grace and faith are enough and the law is not sufficient. So what's going to happen is, as we read through this, Paul's going to give a defense of why the law is not capable of saving us. Then he will move into why then the law. 
So the question that we will deal with next week is why then the law? What is the purpose behind God giving these laws to Moses and issuing this law if it could not save? Why the law? And honestly, folks, as we grow in our faith, we ought to come to a place at some point in time where we ask that question, where if God's grace is completely sufficient and we are saved by God's grace, then what does it matter what we do? What's the importance of the law? What does it matter if I cheat on my wife? It doesn't matter to God. God's grace is there. What does it matter if I kill somebody? Because God's grace is there to cover me. Well, the law is good, and the law has a purpose, but the law cannot save. So what Paul is about to do, and we're going to take two weeks to look at it, is how the law is unable to save, and then what is the real purpose of the law that God gave to Moses. So this morning we'll be focusing specifically on how the law is unable to save and the way that this ties into us being able to take communion this morning is only a Holy Spirit thing. It is just beautiful how Paul is at this point of talking about the Holy Spirit and talking about the grace that God gives us and how the law cannot save and then we are under a new covenant with Jesus. And so, I want us to, to strap in. It's going to get a little thick. I want you to bear with me, but I am aware we're going to take communion. I am aware we had a baptism, so it won't be as long as we normally are used to, all right? So, if you have your Bibles and have made your way to Galatians, and you are there in chapter 3, if you are physically able, I would ask, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word? And we will be reading verses 5 through 22. I will read these verses for us, and then I will say this is the word of the Lord. I encourage you to respond by saying thanks be to God. Let's look together now at Galatians chapter 3, beginning in verse 5. Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it. Or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. When we come to this passage, we're picking up a few of those verses that we left off with last week. And so I want us to remember what Paul is saying. He is saying that when we believe by faith, a faith that changes our life, a faith that moves us to action, a faith that is not just an easy believism, but a faith that changes who we are. When we believe, the Holy Spirit comes and begins to dwell within us. And not only are we saved by faith, but then we are counted righteous and live lives of righteousness, doing good things by faith, by being filled with the Holy Spirit. It is not as though you and I trust in Jesus for salvation and then we begin to work really hard following every law because if we don't follow every law, even though now we've believed by faith, if we break the law, then we've ruined it and we just got to start over from scrap. It's up to us after faith. That is the false gospel that Paul is fighting against. The Holy Spirit, God does the work of salvation and then the Holy Spirit empowers us and God is doing the work of sanctification in us and through us day by day if we believe. It's not just up to us. God doesn't just save us and leave us. The same Spirit that indwells us at believing, at confessing, at calling out like John David did and saying, Jesus is my Lord and Savior by believing that same spirit then lives in us for the rest of our lives. There are no rituals or ceremonies or laws that we have to follow or do to get more of the spirit, to do more good things. That spirit is in us constantly freeing us from the power of sin. So then he moves into this timeline. And what I often forget is the timeline of the Old Testament. I'll get caught up in reading or studying a passage and I'll miss out on when certain people showed up where. And what he is saying here is that God gave Abraham a promise and that promise happened long before he delivered even the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. So if you think in your mind, you got Adam and Eve, it moves on down to Noah, moves on down from Noah and then we pick up after the Tower of Babel with Abraham. Abraham is still in Genesis and long before Moses. And so God makes this promise to Moses. 
I mean, to Abraham, and it cannot be superseded by a law given to Moses. Now, I want to give an analogy here, and every analogy breaks down. Every illustration breaks down at some point, okay? And this one does, like all others. But bear with me and and try and, and, and see through to what Paul is trying to say to us. I would like to describe to us how our government is supposed to work, not how it has worked in the past or how it is currently working, just how it was set up to work. So in 1776, right, we sign a declaration of independence and begin to fight the war. We begin to form our own government. We established a constitution. That constitution is the foundation. It is locked in place. There are three branches of government. There's an executive branch. There's a legislative branch. There's a judicial branch. And so the Constitution has ways to be amended, has ways to be changed. That doesn't apply in our particular scenario, okay? Throw that aside for the illustration. But aside from those ways of being amended, the Constitution can't be changed. It is what it is. So the legislative branch can't write laws that supersede the Constitution. Does that make sense? The Constitution is our founding governing principle. It is the document that established our government and established our nation. So the legislative branch can't bring laws later that are contradictory to the initial constitution. And when that happens, the judiciary branch is there so that they can correct that. And over the years, that has happened. Sometimes people have agreed. Sometimes people have disagreed. But laws are evaluated by the judicial branch. And they say, is this or is this not constitutional? If it is not constitutional, that law gets thrown out. Because the later law can't supersede the Constitution. That is what's happening with Abraham and Moses. Abraham is given a promise by God, and Abraham, is, aside from maybe the Lord doing it and not telling us, we have no knowledge or recollection of anywhere in Scripture that God gave the Ten Commandments to Abraham. Abraham lives his whole life and dies probably without being aware of the Ten Commandments. If he knows them, then God shared them with Abraham, and it's not recorded in Scripture. God does not give the law to Abraham. God calls Abraham to have faith and believe in him and makes a promise to Abraham. And so Abraham is not saved by believing in the law and following the law. Nor is Isaac, nor is Jacob, nor is Joseph. Then for 430 years, none of those Israelites were saved by following the law. And after 430 years of being slaves, like we talked about, where they were in Egypt, just our last sermon series, then sometime later, while they're wandering in the wilderness, they're there on Mount Sinai, Moses gets the Ten Commandments. God gives Moses the law and their system of governance and this standard that God has is shared. Well, if that's not shared until 400 years after Abraham, how is Abraham justified? How is Abraham saved? He's saved by faith in God's promise. So before Jesus came and died on the cross, Old Testament figures who trusted in Jesus and believed that God would provide a sacrifice, the same words that Abraham prophetically speaks to his son Isaac and says, Isaac, the Lord will provide. They 
They named the very mountain, the mountain on which the Lord will provide. Because Abraham speaks these prophetic words that God himself will provide a sacrifice. So salvation came by them trusting that Jesus, the promised one, would come. And that's how Abraham is accounted as righteous. Because he believes the promise that God made him. That your offspring shall be a blessing to all nations. That it will be to everyone. And he says your offspring. He focuses. It's not plural. It's not talking about a ton of people. It's talking about specifically Jesus Christ. And in him all the world will receive salvation if they believe by faith. So there is not a law that's given to Moses that supersedes the promise that was made to Abraham. This covenant made to Abraham, this promise of salvation by faith in God, is what carries throughout the entire Bible. It's what we see. Even you and I today, we believe and are saved, not because we look that Jesus will come, but we look back and say, Jesus did come and he did die and he did take our place and he was raised from the dead. So before Christ, they looked forward and trusted that Jesus would come. And after Christ, they looked back. We look back and see Jesus did come and salvation is one way in all the Bible. And this argument that Paul is making is absolutely essential because if this argument is not true, you and I get no access to God. I just want you to think with me about a world where you don't actually have the freedom to choose whether you want to believe in God or not. But a world where you and I, because we are Gentiles, have no access. Where God said, no, I'm just closing the door. It's only for the Jews. Because you remember when we talk about Jews and Gentiles, the way that Jewish people looked at the world at this time was there's Jews and then there's everybody else. That's what the word Gentile is talking about. All the other nations, everybody else. There's the Jews and then the non-Jews. Those are the only two categories. Well, for you and I, we fall into the non-Jew category. And if we have to be justified by the law that was given to Moses, there's no way for us to have access to God. Because we cannot be offspring of Abraham biologically. We have to have some other way to get to God. And God said, Abraham, it's not about the laws. The law has a different purpose. It's good, and I've got a reason for it. But the law is not there to save you. Faith is what saves you. That's what Paul is describing. He says that those who are children of Abraham, the true children of Abraham, are those who have the same faith. As Abraham, we're adopted into that lineage. We're adopted into that family because we have the same fate as Abraham. It's not about who my daddy was or who your daddy was or is. It's not about your race, your ethnicity, your creed, your color. It is about the same fate that Abraham had. It's not about how well you follow the law or disregard the law, or if you know the law or don't know the law. It's about do you have the faith that Abraham had. And folks, that gives us direct access to be children of Abraham and to be co-heirs with Christ and to be children of God. 
you know, Lily has been fighting hand, foot, and mouth. And I know it's been going around. And, and this particular bout, our boys had it, but it wasn't as bad with them. Hers are really concentrated in her mouth. And she has just been extra pitiful. And, and all through the night, she, she cries even while she's asleep. And then there's times where the pain gets to be too much. And she wakes up and she cries out. And she screams. And, it, and it's, it's just heart-wrenching and heartbreaking over and over again all night long the last several nights. Jess and I have been getting up last couple of nights, getting up and going and checking on her. And there's not a whole lot that we can do to comfort her. We give her medicine. We rock her in her chair. We rub her back. There's, there's not a ton that we can do. But, folks, that is us. And without the promise made to Abraham, we're the children like Lily in pain, hurting, not understanding why we're in pain, not even able to articulate what is hurting or how we need help, and we're crying out. But without the promise of Abraham, mommy and daddy never show up to get us out of the crib. Do we understand that because of this promise and because Jesus is the fulfillment of this promise, when I am hurting, when I am aching, when I don't even know how to articulate it, I can cry and God will show up at the crib and pick me up and rub my back and give me medicine and make it all better. I can always call out to him. I can always cry to him because I belong to him. When Lily cries out through the night, Jessica and I don't get up and go in there because she's very obedient. We don't get up and go in there because she follows our instructions really well. It's actually more the contrary. She's usually our more rebellious of our three children, okay? We don't go and take care of her because she follows the law really well. We go in there because she belongs to us. Because she is our daughter. She's our child. She is precious to us. And we will not leave her in pain and agony and suffering. We're going to do everything we can to bring peace to her situation. To bring comfort to her situation. To help her and to ease the pain. We don't do that because of works of the law. God doesn't love us and take care of us because we follow him really well. But because of the promise that was made to Abraham. And when we have the faith that Abraham had in the promise that was given to Abraham that Christ fulfilled for us. We're adopted and God comes and meets us where we are. When we draw near to him, he draws near to us, James chapter 4 tells us. And he will not leave us in the crib to hurt and to ache and to cry out and to scream, begging for help with no one to show up. He is always a very present help in every time of need. Because if you have the faith of Abraham, you belong to him. He shows up not because you're good. He shows up not because I'm good. He doesn't not show up because you're bad or because I'm bad. He shows up every time. If you believe in the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he shows up every time we cry out because we are true children of God. And there's no law that came after this promise to Abraham that cuts us off from that access directly to the Father. You see, the beauty of it is he quotes all this Old Testament scripture, the the things in Leviticus. If you don't follow every law, you're liable for all of those laws. It says that also in the book of James. We're we're bouncing around the New Testament in our Sunday school lesson, but we'll, we'll get to those as well. If you break one law, you broke all the laws. And so we're all cursed. And the only way to have righteousness is by faith. He quotes Habakkuk. 
And so all of us, he, he quotes Deuteronomy, all of those are cursed who do not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. But then, even though we were cursed, even though I deserve to be executed for my treason, Christ became my curse. And, and folks, I'm not trying to scare anybody, but when we think that word curse, you know, we've just made it so whimsical today. Everybody watches Harry Potter. And, you know, I'm not like hating on Harry Potter, but it's not like a, ooh, I've cursed you. It's not a curse word. We're talking about eternal separation from all of the goodness and all of the mercy and all of the love and all of the radiance of God's glory for all eternity. That's the curse we've brought upon ourselves. And then Jesus became that curse for us. Taking it to the nth degree, it says, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. He specifically got crucified to fulfill a law that said you're cursed if you hang on a tree. Paul says in every single way, Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham. And he takes on the curse for the people who are cursed, you and me. And folks, because of that, we have access to the Father. Only by faith. The same way that Abraham had faith. But it's, it's, not, it's not just that. You see, the law did come along. And, and there needed to be something in between to show how blood was necessary. To show how a sacrifice was necessary. To atone for sin. And then when Jesus was here, he flipped the whole script on its head. So turn with me to 1 Corinthians. We're going to look at this in just a moment when we take communion. But look at what Jesus does here. And, and this ties back to Galatians in so many ways. Because Paul is saying, I received from the Lord what, what, what I also delivered to you. When Paul was told about this happening was probably during that three-year stint that he's with Jesus out in the desert. Paul writes the letter of 1 Corinthians, and it's one of the earliest recorded writings of the transaction that took place in the Lord's Supper. And Paul heard it from Jesus' very lips. The Lord told me that this is how the final supper went down. The Lord told me this is how the last supper happened. He didn't hear it from Peter or Paul. He didn't hear it from James or John. He heard it from the Lord. And this is what Jesus does that last Passover meal with his disciples. I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, Paul says. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. This matzah bread that, that had three burn stripes on it. Because by his stripes we are healed. This matzah bread that at the beginning of the meal they hid it. And then at the end of the meal the children go and find it and bring it back. The same way that a body might be hidden in a grave and then brought back. This bread, my disciples, Jesus says, is my body. Broken for you destroying and accepting the curse that is upon you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup, the third cup of the meal, the cup of redemption, and they expected to drink this cup, but he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant 
in my blood, not a bull's blood, not an ox's blood, not some lamb's blood, but in my blood, says Jesus. You had an old covenant that showed you what the sacrifices needed to look like, that showed you how blood atones for sin. And I'm telling you, that covenant is old and gone, and I'm establishing now the new covenant that ties back to the promise to Abraham, and this covenant is in my own blood that's poured out for you. Folks, the Bible is airtight. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise that came before the law. Jesus is the way that we have access. Jesus is the one who will show up. The Holy Spirit will give us peace, will watch over us, will heal us, will deliver us because if we believe and have the faith of Abraham, we are God's children. We're under this covenant, the covenant in his blood. We don't have to go sacrifice a bull or a goat to try and get access to God. We cry and we call out. And our Lord is a very present help in time of need. And he also says in verse 26, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. One of the best ways that we can worship, one of the most powerful ways that we can worship is to partake of the Lord's Supper. Is to remember the body that was broken because of our curse. Is to remember the access that we have through the blood that was spilled in the bread and in the juice. Now, Paul continues in 1 Corinthians and he says that you shouldn't partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. And so what, what we're going to do is we're going to take just a few moments and, and I want to give us time to read a confession from Psalm 51 together. And, and I want us to take time to pray and get our hearts right before the Lord and ask God to forgive us and cleanse us. And, and I also want to encourage you, if you're not a baptized believer, in the Lord Jesus Christ, then please don't participate. Don't worship the Lord in this way at this time, unless you are a believer that has been baptized and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as the only way, the only truth, and the only life. And so, if that describes you this morning, that you've done that, you believe in Him, you're welcome to worship with us in this way. I know that it's not optimal, okay? I know that those cups are really weird and flimsy and they're not what we would all prefer to be using. But I'm asking to do your very best to put that aside. And even though that cracker that you're going to put in your mouth in a moment is going to taste like newspaper, I know, okay? It is. It's still unleavened bread and it still represents the body of Jesus. Don't let some odd packaging and some non-traditional methods of partaking in this sacred act of worship deter you from worshiping in a meaningful way. And so, with all of that said, turn with me in your Bibles once again or, or follow along on the screen to Psalm 51. We'll read this together. I'll, I'll read and you read along with me out loud. I encourage you to read this as your own personal prayer to the Lord, to, to confess to Him as I'll be doing my very best to read in that way. Before we begin reading, I, I want to remind you that in the New Testament book of 1 John, chapter 1, verse 9, 
we're told that if we confess our sin, that he, the Lord Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us of all unrighteousness. So as we read these words together, be assured that as we confess our sin, because Jesus became our curse, we are forgiven of all unrighteousness if we place our faith in him. If you're physically able, I'd ask once again, would you please stand out of reverence for the public reading of God's holy word? Would you read with me together now Psalm 51, verses 1 through 12, beginning in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit.